the shtick was fun, but you, you feel like the shtick served its purpose. You, you, you want to do serious baking. Yes, yes, for sure. I would love, you know, my I love being able to teach and guide home bakers, and there wasn't anything too practical or actionable in Gourmet Makes, so I'm, I'm happy just to sort of be with people in their home kitchens making things that they can enjoy with, you know, their friends and family. And that attitude of, of being a dessert person is that you're up for eating sweets. You, you don't feel bad about it. Not at all. You don't have to have earned it or ask anyone's permission or your, or your own permission. I'm Sarah Fenske. This is St. Louis on the Air. I'm Emily Woodbury, senior producer for St. Louis on the Air. Before today's episode, I want to take a moment to say thank you for listening. Our team works hard to provide nuance on the news that shapes your life and your community. And we wouldn't be able to do this without your support. The money you give to St. Louis Public Radio helps fund our podcast. So please go to stlpr.org donate and give an amount that works for you. Your contribution, along with that of your neighbors, is what fuels St. Louis on the air. And we're really grateful. Thank you for your support. If you're into food, you're probably into Claire Saffitz. As a senior food editor at Bon Appetit magazine, the Clayton High School graduate developed countless recipes and became a breakout star of the Bon Appetit test kitchen for her gourmet recreations of wildly processed junk food favorites, including Twinkies and Pop-Tarts. Now, Claire Saffitz has left the Bon Appetit test kitchen, and she has a new cookbook. It's called Dessert Person. And for the most part, it won't teach you how to make good versions of bad food, but it will almost certainly make you a better baker. And she joins us today to talk about it. So Claire Saffitz, uh, welcome. Hi, thank you for having me. So happy to be here. So growing up in Clayton, were you always a dessert person? I've always been a dessert person. Um, but I think that I didn't quite identify that about myself um, when I was growing up. I was a uh, part of a family and am part of a family that has always loved food and celebrated food and cooking. Um, and dessert was always a big part of that. Um, but I've just always loved to bake and always loved sweets. So there was always dessert in the house and always dessert after every dinner. Hmm. So I know you dedicated this book to your mom, and your mom has also made some cameos, I guess, by phone into the test kitchen. Is she a good uh-huh. baker herself? My mom is an excellent baker, and she really taught me the fundamentals when I was growing up. Um, I remember as a kid coming home and there would be warm bread on the stove that she had baked um, that we would have with dinner. And she was always baking quick breads and muffins and stuff like that. So um, she's really an excellent baker and helped kind of form me as a pastry chef. Um, I know she's listening now, so she'll be happy to hear that. So yeah, I dedicated the book to my mom. She helped me a lot with the book. I spent some time with her developing recipes and um, she's just sort of my, my trusted baking resource. So when you say developing recipes, I, I, you, you address head on in this book the fact that baking does get kind of a bad rap. Uh, so many of us think it think of it as something mechanical, that a baker is just, you know, following a recipe. It's almost like chemistry, whereas cooking is for creative people. What about that do you want to dismantle with this book? Absolutely. I always felt like baking got a little bit of a bad rap and there was somewhat of an anti-baking bias. As you said, it was, um, it's often presented to me that cooking is creative and improvisational and baking is rigid and exacting. And um, yes, there are rules in baking. There is 
science involved, although, of course, there's science involved in cooking as well. Mm -hmm. Um, But I always felt like baking was much more creative um, and flexible and versatile than it was given credit for. And so this book is really a defense of baking, um, and I really want to um, sort of um, break people's associations between baking and things that are kind of state or grandmotherly, because I think baking can be exciting and expressive, and it can also be seasonal the way that cooking is. Um, you can bake with the seasons and as produ- new produce comes into the farmer's market. So this book is my defense of baking, and that's one reason why there's an entire chapter on savory baking. So mm. the book is called Dessert Person because that's how I identify, and I think being a dessert person is an attitude, but baking is much more than dessert. So um, you can bake dinner, and I wanted people to know that. And that attitude of, of being a dessert person is that you're up for eating sweets. You You don't feel bad about it. Not at all. That's exactly right. I felt like being a dessert person is about embracing food as pleasure. It's sort of a, a fundamental source of pleasure in life. Um, and I don't think that food has any moral weight. So you can have dessert and you don't have to feel bad about it. You don't have to have earned it or ask anyone's permission or your or your own permission. Um, it's really just about embracing that and um, living a life free of restrictions in that way. Hmm. So for those of us who are less, the the problem with baking for us is not the guilt of eating it. The problem is that we're just terrified that it's too hard. I absolutely love (laughs) that you opened this book with a matrix. Uh, You sort of charted things by difficulty and how much time a recipe takes. And under this matrix, of course, I had to look what is going to be the very hardest and and longest thing to do here. And these are croissants. Um, Are they (laughs) worth it? I think you under there is something like 12 hours goes into this? Right, right. I, of course, I think they're worth it. Um, I didn't put anything in the book that I, um, you know, don't sort of wholeheartedly recommend someone try. Um, but of course, everyone has to fit a baking project into their normally busy lives. So I, I understand that, um, you know, not everyone is baking under perfect circumstances. So I created that matrix because I felt like people always have to think about a recipe in terms of the amount of time and effort they have to devote to it. So even though a recipe takes 12 hours or even 24 hours, it might be spending most of that time in the refrigerator, you know, resting. So mm-hmm. um, I really think about recipe re- recipes in two ways, ones that take a lot of effort and ones that take a lot of time and kind of move along that spectrum. So that matrix was helped um, was designed to help people pick the right project for that. Maybe you want something super quick and easy, so you look to one corner of the matrix, and you see brownies, or you want something that maybe you have the time, but you don't want to um, spend a lot of active time making it. So then you go to one corner and you have something like the, the focaccia recipe. So, or you have a lot of time and you want to spend a lot of effort on the recipe and, and you make the croissant. So um, it's just a way to help people move, navigate their way through the book a little bit more easily. So I had to look up your gooey butter cake. I wanted to see where it fell on this matrix. And this is on the easier side um, of easy versus difficult. It's not going to be as easy as using the one with the yellow cake box that so many of us are used to doing. Um, but it's easier than difficult. I noticed yours uses a yeasted coffee cake base. Does that really make a difference to use that instead of just the box mix? It really does feel like a sort of a, a different a different recipe um, than the box mix with the cream cheese topping. So I did a little bit of research and I actually never made gooey butter cake from anything other than a mix um, when I lived in St. Louis. But I put in some research um, and I saw a recipe um, from Melissa Clark, who's a New York Times uh, food writer and recipe developer. And hers used um, a yeasted coffee cake base. Mm -hmm. And um, a little research turned up that 
the origins, which are kind of disputed, apparently. Um, so maybe some listeners can enlighten me if they if anyone um, has a clear idea of, of where it comes from. But oh, boy, you're asking for this now. Our phone lines are going to blow up. Everybody's going to tell us their true origin story of gooey butter cake. I'm very curious and I'm curious to know what's apocryphal and what's not. Um, but from what I could find, the origin came from German bakers um, working in St. Louis. Uh, and so, you know, a yeast to coffee cake base is kind of a classic German recipe. So I really liked that idea because I think that it helps balance out the intense sweetness of gooey butter cake. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I like having that yeasted base and then the gooey, delicious kind of caramelized topping. Um, and this makes that really classic kind of waves in the cake um, that I just think is, is such a hallmark of gooey butter cake. So, yeah, this one is definitely a bit more effort than something from the yellow cake mix, but I think it's well worth it. And again, like a lot of yeasted recipes, it the, t- the t- total time is rather lengthy, but it just rests overnight in the refrigerator mm-hmm. and then it's ready to bake the next morning. So overall, not a ton of effort. So I got to ask, with this gooey butter cake version that you have and the yeasted coffee cake and you're not using cream cheese, is this basically the gourmet version, uh, gourmet makes version of gooey butter cake? <laughs> You've re- reverse engineered this thing that we're all used to. This is kind of a familiar thing for you, right? I think so. I mean, I guess I like to think of it as being closer sort of closer to the original or sort of closer to the spirit of the original. But um, but yeah, I think so. I'm, I'm constantly trying to kind of temper the sweetness of desserts. Um, I don't like desserts that are too sweet, and I want the other ingredients and the other flavors to really shine. So with sugar, sugar like salt is a flavor enhancer. So you add sugar and you make something taste more of itself. Um, but you add too much sugar, and then all you get is overwhelming sweetness. So every recipe goes through this process of tweaking and tasting and, and kind of getting it to where I want it to be. So, yeah, I mean, the recipe development process for the cookbook follows the same kind of uh, path as, you know, a typical challenge in an episode of Gourmet Makes. We're talking today to Claire Saffitz. Uh, she was a senior food editor at Bon Appetit who became a viral sensation. She now has a, a book, a cookbook called Dessert Person, and there's some great high-end uh, treats in there you can learn how to bake, but she also keeps it really simple for those of us who are not at all talented. Uh, it's a, a very engaging book. I want to go back to this gourmet makes because this is really what made you famous. And when I say famous, I'm not kidding. I mean, people are freaking out about the fact that you are on our airwaves. I, I'm going to read you a tweet, uh, Bill tweets, literally gasped when I heard that St. Louis on the Air was interviewing the one and only Claire Saffitz fangirling right now. I saw there's a, a compilation people put together of this This title of this is called Claire from Bon Appetit being absolutely adorable for nine minutes straight. It's just little clips of you saying little things as you work in the Bon Appetit test kitchen. It has 500,000 views. Is it almost scary how much people are into you? It certainly... I'm taken aback, for sure, um, when I see things like that. And um, But I do think it's a little bit generational. I think the, the YouTube audience, because Gourmet Makes really found its audience on YouTube, um, is certainly younger than I am um, and looks at YouTube differently than I do. Um, so I'm not totally... I, I don't totally engage with it all the time. I'm not as online, um, I think, as many of the viewers. So when I do see something like that on Twitter or on YouTube, it, it is surprising to me. Um, but I just sort of feel like I, I still go about my my normal daily life, and sometimes I get a little shot out on the subway in New York City where I live. <laughs> but um, for the most part, nothing has changed. But, you know, when I do see 
examples of that kind of um, intense fan devotion. It is surprising and incredibly flattering uh, at the same time. Um, but it's just something I never imagined, and I, I never even thought I would really do video hosting. So it's it's the whole thing is is incredibly surprising. Yeah, this is not really the path you had picked out for yourself. You you weren't like, I'm going to become a, a star on YouTube. You went to Paris to, to study baking. Uh, were you there to study baking or you were just studying cooking in general at that point? Um, yeah, I went to Paris to um, go to culinary school and I was doing uh, a program that included some pastry but was mostly cuisine, mostly just cooking. Um, and that was followed by an externship um, and then I actually went straight from Paris to graduate school at McGill University hmm. because I knew that I wanted to write, but I also loved to cook, and I was looking for the best way to combine those two. Um, so I went to McGill to get a master's degree in history with a focus on culinary history um, of France uh, and England in the early modern period. And then I decided that I missed cooking. Hmm. Um, and then I kind of stumbled into food media and realized that it was this perfect combination um, and I became an editor at Bon Appetit. And video was never something that I kind of had in my sights at all. I sort of fell into it. I was very, very happy just to be an editor and a recipe developer. So the whole thing really took an, a turn in a way that I never predicted. But it's been wonderful. And it's it's great to have an audience. And food as as a medium is, is so suited for video. So I'm, I'm happy to have that opportunity to really be able to teach and show. Did they have to talk you into being on video at first or, or were you up for it? You just had no idea how many people would be watching. Right. It did take a little bit of convincing. I just did not. It was incredibly intimidating. Um, I didn't really know how to, how to present on camera, but um, I give a lot of credit to uh, the video team uh, at Bon Appetit for creating um, sort of a format that allowed me to be myself and to to be very natural. So um, I think that helped quite a bit. And, and I was sort of, in a sense, in my element. But yeah, I, I sort of, I was, I was quite a skeptic in the beginning. I was also an editor who was, you know, sort of busy doing my, my, normal, my normal duties as an editor and recipe developer in the test kitchen. So hmm. um, it, it certainly formed over time. So the test kitchen did come under fire in the past year for treating people of color differently than their white colleagues. And you announced, I guess this was earlier this month, that you were going to be that you had left the test kitchen. And you said that you were grateful to Bon Appetit um, and to Condé Nast for building your career on their platform. But you said this opportunity was not granted equally to all. Is that a big part of why you left? It is a big part of why I left. Um, I also just wanted to be more in control of my, my own career path um, and of my choices going forward. So I, I was um, I was an editor for many, many years, for five years, and then for the last year and a half, uh, I was a freelance just as a video host um, and decided to, my contract ended this past May, and I decided to uh, not to renew that contract and to go out on my own and just be more independent. I have this, this cookbook, and yeah, I think that um, sort of not being under that structure and being able to make my own decisions and, and create of my own culture that I want to work in is, is really important to me going forward. And I support all of my colleagues who decided to do the same. So we got an email from our listener, Tatiana. and She says, I'd like to know if Claire has received offers from traditional or digital media outlets to do video content. And if so, if she's considering taking any of them. You want to give us the scoop on your, uh, your plans here? <laughs> yeah, I'm very much still formulating a plan. Um, I've, I really took the summer off, which was great for me. Uh, and now I'm focusing on the book now that it's just come out. Um, but I, I do hope to do video in the future. I'm not sure what format will take. 
Um, I've had some wonderful introductions to um, some, uh, let's see if I can get the lingo right, like the um, linear video. I'm, I'm not even sure, really sure. There's streaming, then there's more traditional kind of networks and that kind of thing. So I've had some, um, some, some good meetings and I'm still kind of sorting through it. And, um, but I'm sort of leaning towards doing it on my own hmm. and, uh, and really kind of um, being able to tackle and produce the kind of projects that I want to do. So this brand that you never really sought to create that just kind of happened, um, it sounds like this is going to be really good. This is going to give you the independence to do the projects you really want to do on your own. I hope so. And I hope that Dessert Person, although it's the title of the book, I really imagine it sort of being this um, sort of creating this universe under the Dessert Person moniker and having it be a place where people can come to find recipes and to um, to sort of have community because as much as I love doing gourmet makes and it was a really fun show for a long time, um, the idea of reverse engineering snack foods was never sort of the the locus of my passion. So I'm, <laughs> I'm, 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 a, I'm a home baker. You know, I just want to be at home making pies and cakes. And so um, I, I'm excited to pursue that and to, to really sort of project the idea of dessert person going forward. So the shtick was fun, but you, you feel like the shtick served its purpose. You, you, you want to do serious baking. Yes, yes, for sure. I would love, you know, my I love being able to teach and guide home bakers, and there wasn't anything too practical or actionable in gourmet makes. So I'm, I'm happy just to sort of be with people in their home kitchens making things that they can enjoy with, you know, their friends and family. Yeah, I do want to say this book, these are recipes you really can make. This is not something like trying to make Sour Patch Kids from home where maybe you're trying to suck up 48 hours of a pandemic and you need a project. These are things that you will really want to eat. They're worth eating. It's not something where it's just a goof. Um, this is, this right. is some good stuff here in Dessert Person. I do want to ask you, though, in our final couple minutes here, just a little bit more about St. Louis. I noticed on your Instagram uh, pre pandemic, you had posted a photo of Ted Drews and you titled it simply home. Was that saying I'm home in St. Louis or is that saying Ted Drews really is, is kind of a home for you as well? Uh, both, I guess. Um, I So I grew up in St. Louis, first in University City and then in Clayton. I went to Clayton High School. Um, I'm the youngest. I have two older sisters, both also graduated from Clayton High School. Um, but when I graduated and went off to college, my parents moved away from St. Louis. So I've been back as an adult several times and actually many more times over the last couple of years. Um, and it's just, an, it, it still feels like home for me. I haven't lived there for many, many years. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's just such, I think, a wonderful city with such wonderful food traditions. So places like Ted Drew's or Blueberry Hill in the Loop, um, those are places that really feel like home for me um, and where I still crave you know, I still, I still crave food from there. Hmm. Um, so so those flavors, taste is so connected to, me, to memory for me. So going to a place like Tedrews is just, it's just a wonderful experience still. I was amused in the episode where you were trying to uh, recreate Pocky that one of your coworkers um, accused you playfully, but did accuse you of playing up the St. Louis thing. Do you think that's been part of your appeal, that people like that you're not a snob? I mean, you just you seem like a genuinely nice person that we all secretly think would be our friend if we knew you in real life. Oh, well, thank you. Thanks for saying that. Um, yeah, I think... This is something I've, I've talked about, um, and I think it's really important, is that um, I'm very particular. I have strong opinions about food and other things, um, but I'm not a snob, and I think there's a difference. So I, I am happy to let people have the things that they love, and you don't have to only like things that are 
gourmet. I, I sort of I get I, I get sort of like irritated when people say, "Oh, I only eat dark chocolate," or "I only have this thing," or "I only drink red wine," or something. And it's like you know, there's there's good versions of everything, and um, and so I think that there's just really no room for snobbery. And so in St. Louis, it's like, yeah, I'll just end St. Louis style pizza in New York to, to New Yorkers who love their uh, their New York style pizza. So I just think. There's such a nostalgia factor with food. It's like you just like what you like. Um, and so growing up in St. Louis, I never had any Pocky. That was that was part of the joke in that episode. And I'm sure that there are Pocky in St. Louis, but it was just never a part of my childhood. So, um, yeah, I always defend my uh, my Midwest roots. Well, we appreciate you for that. Um, and, yes, we do have Pocky here now. I don't know that we would have had it back uh, when you were a young child. So one last thing I want to make sure to mention in our final minute here is you are going to be at the Jewish Book Festival on November 6th. We have information about how people can join along on that on our website. That's stlpublicradio.org. Or people can go to the Jewish Book Festival website. That's jccstl.com. You're doing a bake-along recipe. Have you decided yet what you're going to be teaching the book festival people to make? I think so, yes. I think that we're going to be making um, my almond butter banana bread. Mm. So it's a really easy recipe, but it has kind of an unexpected um, flavor combination, and I think it's super delicious. And certainly banana bread um, has been uh, a popular recipe during the pandemic for people, so this is a little new twist on it, and I think it should just be really fun. And I have my friend Joe Firestone is going to be joining me um, for that event, which I think will be great. Well, we do hope people will check that out. Again, that's jccstl.com, and you can bake along with Claire Saffitz, who I know you think is your best friend, but turns out everybody feels that way. So, Claire Saffitz, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Is listening to an episode of St. Louis on the Air part of your daily routine? If so, suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help new people discover our show. Thank you. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, providing more than 41,000 jobs in the production of wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details at ChooseWood.com.